Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Continue our sermon series from 1 Samuel, Seeing with God's Eyes, 1 Samuel 16. We'll be looking at various passages around 1 Samuel 16. So if you open your Bibles there, God's Word, 1 Samuel 16. Things aren't always as they appear. David Blagg, a pastor in Texas, had an armadillo problem. He had armadillos that were tearing up his yard. They were making a mess of everything. And one evening he looked out and there was an armadillo between two trees. And so he got out a shotgun. He was going to take care of business like a Texan. And he shot it and it kicked to the left. And he shot it again and it kicked to the right. He went out there to, to claim his trophy and realized he had just put buckshot in his son's football twice. <laughs> Not to let him off the hook, the church actually had the football mounted and presented it to him during worship, and the <laughs> local newspaper did a story, and now it hangs in his living room, a trophy of shooting his son's football, reminding us that things aren't always as they appear. February 1989, headlines of various publications and periodicals read like this, Don't Judge a Millionaire by His Duds. That was the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Bank saves 60 cents, loses $1 million customer. That was the UPI story in 1989. The story goes like this. John Barrier went to the bank where he had always banked for 30 years, the old National Bank in Spokane, Washington. He cashed a check. He had on his usual duds, tennis shoes, baseball caps, had Acme concrete on the brim, and he asked them to validate his 60-cent parking ticket, and the teller refused. She said, you know, really just cashing a check is not a transaction that warrants the validation of a parking ticket. So, no, I'm following policy. I can't validate your parking ticket over a, over a cashing of a check. So he protested and said he wanted to see the manager. And the manager stood by the teller and said, that's right, we cannot validate a parking ticket based upon your cashing a check. Well... Barrier insisted again, and they still refused. And in response, he moved all of his money in today's dollars, $2 million away from Spokane's old National Bank to the Seacrest National Bank. The check they received, the first check, was in today's dollars worth $2 million, all because the teller misjudged a customer based on his clothes. The bank quickly responded in the press and said, well, we are totally reconsidering our parking ticket policy, and we're going to treat every customer like a valued guest. You might think the problem started in Hollywood or New York or Paris, but it wasn't. The tendency to judge people based upon their physical appearance is as old as Adam. You think he would know better. This is Samuel. This is the voice of the creator to the creation. This is the one who makes it thunder and calls down the hell from heaven. This is the one of whom all the people trembled. You think he'd know better. And yet, seemingly, Samuel himself stumbles 
as he judges would-be, could-be kings based upon their appearance or their stature. The sermon has one point today. It doesn't make it any shorter, but it is only a one-point sermon. Change your life and the lives of those around you by seeing with God's eyes. Change your life and the lives of those around you by seeing with God's eyes. If you're an employer, make hiring selections based upon suitability, experience, giftiness, and not outward appearances like hair color, skin color, waistline, lipstick, or height. You're a school teacher. And of course, unconsciously, of course, unconsciously. But do you ever favor the more attractive children, the cutest, the one with the biggest grin, the girl with the bluest eyes? It's real easy to do. It creeps upon us. It's easy to do when they have dimples, isn't it? And if Samuel is guilty, I know that we're all guilty as well. Right here in God's Word. As we're transitioning from King Saul to King David, God teaches us a lesson. Don't judge people by appearances. Judge people by their hearts. The previous chapter, chapter 15, gave us the final and the ultimate rejection of Saul because of disobedience. Look at the end of, of chapter 15. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel might be sidetracked by mourning, by grieving over the stumbling, falling Saul. But Yahweh is a God of action. He commands the prophet to quit grieving, Quit thinking about Saul. We're moving forward. We're going with a new king. I've got a, another plan. This king, we're told in the text, is to be from the sons of Jesse. Jesse, the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, the one who comes from the tribe of Judah. And from this time forward, the name Jesse, the tribe of Judah, and the name Bethlehem will always be linked with Israel's Messiah in Isaiah, Micah, and Romans. Do you notice how the command is worded? Look at the end of verse 1 of chapter 16. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself. You notice what God says. Unlike the decision of Saul, where the people made a choice and Yahweh made a concession to the kingship, now with David, God is going to be in the business of hand-picking his king. How was Saul selected? Turn back to, to chapter 9 and, and verse 2. Do you remember how he was selected? Chapter 9 and, and verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders 
and up he was taller than any of the people. Turn over to chapter 10 and verse 23. It's, it's not a, a single message. It's over and over again. When we get to, to chapter 10, this is the public acclamation of the kingship of Saul. They cast lots. They fall upon Saul. They run and take him. He's hiding behind the luggage rack. So look at verse 23. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? For surely there is no one like him among the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Back to, back to chapter 16. Saul was selected, and as part of his selection criteria, the narrator lets you know he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was the tallest man in all of Israel. He was a physical specimen to behold. Though God wanted to use Saul to work with Saul, it wasn't because of his handsomeness. It wasn't because of his height or his statue. But Saul, you remember, was disobedient. He would not wait on Samuel for the sacrifice. You remember that. He rejects the authority by, of the prophet we saw last week by when well, he's supposed to totally annihilate the Amalekites. He spared Agag the king and the choice animals. And God has rejected Saul. And so God says to Samuel, I have chosen for myself a new king. Now get up, quit grieving over Saul, get the oil ready, and go. The oil was a symbol of the Spirit of God, the empowerment of God. It was used before only on Saul and David. Before that time, it was reserved for the priest as a symbol of the presence and the power and the calling of God in their life. I can't go, says Samuel, verse 2. Saul will kill me if I go. If I go saying I'm choosing a new king, while there's still a king sitting on the throne, there'll be big trouble. Well, just go, say you're going to sacrifice, have a sacrifice, invite the boys, Jesse and his family, to the sacrifice in Bethlehem, and I will let you know whom I have chosen to be my king. When Samuel arrives, the people shout out as Tom read, Do you come in peace? Do you come in peace? <laughs> He's a... He's a character to be feared. He's called down thunder. He's put a hailstorm on all their crops. Samuel didn't show up in Bethlehem every day. It was big business when the prophet came. Oh, I come in peace. I've come for a sacrifice. Now, go and get Jesse and his boys. Look what happens in verse 6. And so it came about when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is right here. Now, Eliab was the firstborn, the logical one. He sees him and thinks this is kingly material, indicating that Eliab, too, must be tall and handsome and firstborn and have all the things that men would use to choose a king. But God gives a earth-shattering message for us to hear today in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance 
or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance. But, but the Lord looks at the heart. Is there any more prophetic word for our culture today than this word? A culture we live in so captured by beauty. Our glasses are so rose-colored when it comes to physical appearance that we don't even realize what we're doing as we judge people and react differently to people based upon their shell. Nothing more than their skin, their arrangement of their outward appearance. It's not just my opinion. There's a documented study about this time and time again. You've heard all of your life. You're going on that first blind date. You're going on that job interview. You're going on that interview to get in graduate school. And what they'll tell you is you walk out the door. Remember, you've got about 60 seconds to make a first great impression. How are you dressed? Is your hair combed? Do you look good? You've got 60 seconds. And then some people thought, no, you probably don't have that long. You probably got 30 seconds. And someone says, no, I think it's 20 seconds. Somebody said, no, I think it's two or three seconds. Actually, they did a study. Princeton psychologist Janine Willis and Alexander Toradoff discovered that you have one-tenth of one second to make a first impression based upon appearances. One-tenth of one second. 100 milliseconds. That's all you got. They did this by flashing pictures in front of subjects and asking them to judge the subjects at Princeton based upon a, a character trait like, is this person competent or trustworthy? And if they flashed the picture for one-tenth of a second, the subject had the same judgment of the picture as he did if he looked at it for 30 seconds. His mind did not change. In one-tenth of one second, you and I categorize people as trustworthy or competent or smart or skillful or nice or good based upon one-tenth of one second of their outward physical appearance. It's the prejudice of lookism. If you're beautiful or handsome, people laugh at your jokes. They interact with you differently in such a way as it's easy for you to have social skills. And then when we take older people and however we place them in the category of harmless and useless based upon the wrinkles of their face in our culture, we judge by appearances. In fact, Forbes magazine did an article that summarized several different university studies and actually found out, it's kind of funny, what was the characteristic of Saul? He was taller than any of the people from the shoulders up. Forbes magazine said the University of Florida did a study and for every inch you're taller than average, you get compensated an actual $789 more per year. So Joel Richards would make $5,000 more per year than I would. <laughs> based upon the fact that he's 6'6", six, six, and I'm just a little over six feet tall. 5,000 more annually in your paycheck simply because you're taller. This is from the University of Florida. Overweight people, however, on the other hand, this one comes from George Washington University, 
make, if the BMI body mass index is 30 or greater, they are paid less. $8,666 for an overweight woman and $4,772 less for an overweight man. Isn't that incredible? And why the difference between men and women? Women more judged on their weight than men. Do you see that? In fact, you've heard all of your life that, that blondes have more fun. I don't know if they do, but I do know they get paid more. That's why women want to be a blonde. The Queens of the University of Technology said that after looking at not 10 or 20, looking at 13,000 Caucasian women. 13,000 women were in the study. And blondes on average with same education level, same years of experience, make an average of 7% more than their brunette counterparts. 7% more for simply being blonde. And no less authority than Yale University concluded that handsome people are paid handsomely. Daniel Hammermesh found that beautiful workers earn an average of 5% more than their average-looking counterparts and 9% more than their unattractive counterparts. 9% based upon physical appearance, the study out of Yale University. From Samuel until now, nothing has changed. We have not heard the admonition from God that we are not to look at outward appearances, but rather we are to see people based upon their heart. Do not look at the outward appearance, Samuel. Men look at the wrong thing. I look at the heart. Oh, it must be Eliab, he thinks. Well, this idea that Good-looking kings don't make good kings. It's not an isolated message dealing with Saul and Eliab. In fact, we won't turn to it for time's sake, but do you remember the David's son by the name of Absalom? You remember his son was a murderer? He burned Joab's field. He was a traitor. He was a betrayer. He was all those things. And in 2 Samuel 14, 25, it says, Now in Israel there was no one as handsome as Absalom. So highly praised, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, he was absolutely perfect. That's the message. It's not just Saul. It's not just Eliab. This, this is a sub-theme of Samuel that beware of judging by outward appearance. Absalom, it says, if you don't get the message, it says, from head to toe, he is perfect. He is the front of GQ, ladies. He is absolutely perfect. But he's a murderer. He's self-centered. He's a traitor. He wants to kill his very father. Over and over again, Saul, Eliab, Absalom, quit looking at the outside. We're totally guilty, aren't we? And it is so subtle. We don't even know we're doing it. I heard when someone say, this is a direct quote that I heard, and I know they didn't mean it like it sound. Upon someone's death, a person said, and I heard the quote, oh, that's a shame. She was such a beautiful girl. Meaning if she were an average looking girl, it wouldn't be a shame if she died. The first judgment was upon the pronouncement of death, oh, that's a shame. She is such a beautiful girl. In fact, I found one statement in regard to the emergency rooms 
that they are significantly more likely to try to revive a patient that comes in DOA, dead on arrival, based upon how good-looking the patient is or is not. It's not a judgment they would admit to. You have to look back at the facts, studying the cases, but if you're dying and you're handsome or beautiful, they're much more likely to try to sustain your life. It is so interwoven into who we are that we don't even realize that we're doing it. A successful beauty products company asked folks in a large city to send in pictures of the most beautiful women in their lives with a letter explaining the story behind these women. Carla Muir tells the story. Within a few weeks in this large city, thousands of letters were received, delivered to the company. And one letter stood out among all the other letters. It was written by a young boy, and the letter was soon handed to the, the CEO of the cosmetics company. This is an excerpt from the letter. A beautiful woman lives down the street from me. I visit her every day. She makes me feel like the most important kid in the world. We play checkers. And she listens to me. She understands me. And when I leave, she always yells out the screen door, I'm proud of you. The boy ended the letter by saying, this picture shows you that she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And someday I hope to have a wife that pretty. The president, intrigued by the letter, asked to see the photograph. It was a smiling, old, toothless woman. Sitting in a wheelchair, sparse gray hair pulled back, deep wrinkles from the sun burned on her face, with a twinkle in her eye. I can't use this, said the CEO. Then people would find out our products aren't the thing that really makes you be beautiful. Frederick Beatner said of his own mother, to be born blonde and blue-eyed and beautiful as my mother was can be as much a handicap in his own way as to be born with a cleft palate. Because when you're beautiful enough, you don't really have to be much of anything else to make people love you and want to be near you. You don't have to be kind or unselfish or generous or compassionate because people will flock around you and want to be beside you simply because of your beauty. W.B. Yeats writes this poem. Hearts are not had as a gift. But hearts are earned by those who are not entirely beautiful. Hearts are not had as a gift, but hearts are earned by those who are not entirely beautiful. Put another way, God is saying when it comes to judging those around us that we are often on a different page than God is. He does not see people the way that we see people. He's not fooled by the outer shell. 
All the boys of Jesse come before the prophet. Notice there's seven of them that pass by. It's over. It's complete. The full number, seven in Scripture, the full number has come. David was so insignificant that no one even thought, let's don't bother him. Somebody's got to watch the sheep. It was so certain that he wouldn't be chosen to be king. They didn't even ask him to show up. Jesse, are these all your boys? Well, no, there's the least boy. We don't want to bother him. Well, go and get him. I will not sit down until he gets here. And as David, the least of all the boys, is walking up, the Spirit of God whispers in the ear of the prophet, this is he. This is the one. Samuel immediately anoints him with oil, though it will be in a private setting here and later publicly in 2 Samuel chapter 2, is the presence of the Spirit of Yahweh inhabiting the shepherd boy in a new and a powerful way. The least, the marginal, the unlikely, the unseen. How often do you and I fail to see the God potential in someone based upon outward appearances? How often do you and I fail to see the God potential in someone based upon outward appearances? We are so easily fooled by the weakest of indicators. How about David's son? No, I don't mean Absalom. I mean, what about his son? What about the Messiah, the son of David? Isaiah 53 says, take it for what it's worth, describing the Messiah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Not only did we miss David based upon superficial criteria, Israel missed the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 2, for the same reason. How would it change your life and the life of all those around you if you started seeing with God's eyes for a change? I was talking to a church member this week who brings a child to First Baptist Church who has no history going to church whatsoever. And I asked the question, how's John doing coming here to First Baptist Church? And she replied, he absolutely loves it. Because of his appearance, because of his appearance, everywhere else he goes, he's judged differently. But when he comes to First Baptist Church, despite his appearance, he's treated like a good kid. And thus, at church, he's discovered the only place where people will let him be a good kid. He walks in our doors, pastor, with no label and no concern. That's new for him. And he's flourishing. I'm proud of you for that.
to give a kid a chance in this arena that nobody else would give him. At 12th and Tyler, we're trying to see people with God's eyes. Will you join us? Let us pray. Oh God, how guilty we are of being so superficial. How brokenhearted we ought to be over being fooled by all the wrong things. Father, I pray that beginning at this moment that we will commit ourselves to seeing more than skin deep. That we will try as best we can with your wisdom and love to see the hearts of men and women. God, there may be someone here this morning who needs to come and call Jesus Christ Lord, knowing that he died for them and he rose again. Maybe there's someone who wants to come and be a part of a church like this who tries to see people for the heart and not the face. God, give us your grace and your peace and your joy. Amen.